Welcome to Taking Notes with NextGen Venture Partners, where we have interesting conversations with entrepreneurs and innovators in the NextGen investing ecosystem. I'm your host, Dan Mindis. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. My guest today is Max Wessel. Max is a venture partner with NextGen and the head of SAP.io. SAP is a $125 billion market cap enterprise software company, and they've taken that pretty big bet on what Max is doing, which is identifying really talented engineers within SAP and then working with them to create entirely new companies uh, out of scratch. Uh, they're often leveraging the data that SAP has from its uh, large customer base with their, those customers' uh, permission, of course. Uh, but they're working on some really interesting uh, new companies. Uh, and Max is at the forefront of an entirely new phenomenon in the early stage financing space, the startup studio. So traditional venture capital invests in existing companies. Startup studios are creating those companies uh, from scratch. Uh, Max has a really interesting perspective on the studio model, on what works, what doesn't work, what's working within SAP. And I think you'll really enjoy the conversation. Max Wessel, thanks so much for joining me today. Happy to be on the phone. Max, tell us what SAP.io is. Uh, well, that requires a little bit of a backstory and a lot of showmanship. But the, the simple way of putting it is SAP.io is SAP's bet on our ecosystem. Uh, at the core of SAP's business is the, the world's largest and robust enterprise applications portfolio. And over the last 10 decades, we've invested a huge amount of money in shifting what was a traditionally on-premise business into the cloud. Uh, over that journey, we acquired what is more than 100 million cloud users and a treasure trove of data assets. And a couple of years ago, we realized that we could be doing a whole lot more to accelerate startups and our own organization's adoption and use of those data assets to drive expansion into new markets, experimentation with new business models, et cetera. And we built what is effectively an internal and externally oriented venture fund that makes investments to spin up new businesses and to support startups in the ecosystem that are playing with our data assets not necessarily our technologies, and frankly, in many ways, building in many areas, building businesses that may compete with SAP or complement SAP, but the underlying theme or the, the singular purpose across all of them is that they touch our data, they enrich our data, and they bring more value to our customers. Um, so this is a little bit of a side note, but I have to ask in this sort of uh, moment where of uh, deep concern over data privacy and what Facebook and Google and so forth are doing. Um, is there any issue there with SAP's uh, customers' data? Yeah, so um, that's a great question. Um, and I think things impact consumer businesses and enterprise businesses differently when we talk about access to data and enrichment of applications using data. Um, traditionally, in the world of enterprise IT, a largely unsexy part of the VC and startup ecosystem, but actually one that drives a, a huge amount of value for the technology world. Um, in that world, customers always own their own data. So SAP might have access to 100, 100 million plus cloud users, but whenever we use the data or in, in almost every situation we, when we use the data we work with the permission and the the blessing of the customer that is having their data enriched unlike an organization like facebook 
that sort of has you sign a blanket privacy agreement and then retains the ability to offer offer access to any number of developers or ecosystem partners to leverage that data that they may get from you without a meaningful amount of scrutiny. Um, and so for that reason, I think many, the way in which businesses in the enterprise world are leveraging and transforming applications using data and artificial intelligence and predictive analytics and the simple data science oriented model um, tends to be a little bit more palatable, right? You have customers who are asking you to come in with a data enabled application. They're giving you their data and in exchange, they're getting value out of it. And they've made a very intelligent, rational consideration of whether or not they'd like to share that data. Frankly, they make the same judgment when they when they share data with a vendor by putting it in the cloud or maintain it on premise. You have this rich treasure trove of data. You have a more robust consent from your customers to use it. Give us an example of uh, an application or uh, a, 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 new, um, a new approach um, based on uh, that data. Sure. So, so one of the, one of the investments that I'm most excited about. Um, is a business called Atlas that we funded. Um, Atlas is a geospatial analytics business. Um, at the core of the business's thesis is that for the last 40 years, the world of geospatial analytics and geospatial information systems, which again is something we don't talk about a lot in the world of startups, but it's a huge market. It's a $9 billion market. It's expected to go to 20 billion over the next five years. It's dominated in large part by one company, a company called Esri, um, which is a great business that does very complex uh, geospatial tra data transformation, data management, and data data analytics in the in on-premise and in the cloud. Um, but what Atlas's thesis was was that for many business users who don't have the means or the competence to manage these complex environments the value of geospatial insights is still enormous, right? We have, if you think about every individual walking around the United States at the moment, they're carrying one connected device, generally at a minimum, sometimes more. They're spitting off geospatially tagged information every minute or every couple of minutes. They're creating a trail, kind of a journey map across the country. We have a living, breathing set of information that is accessible, but largely locked up from small businesses and medium-sized businesses everywhere. So what Atlas said was, we're going to take that information, we're going to simplify its access. We will do all the data management for you. We will do all of the data binding, the data transformation. This is the ugly plumbing that's required in order to generate any sort of insight in a large organization. And, and they said, you don't have to be Starbucks with a, an enormous GIS department in order to get value from those same insights. If you're a company, if you're a small local coffee store expanding from five locations to 15, right? If you're growing fast in your region, but you can't afford to hire one geospatial engineer, let alone 50, you should still have access to that data and be able to generate insight around what neighborhoods are changing, where you want to um, focus your efforts, where you should be marketing, where your target customers are, et cetera. Um, that data, we went out and we, we worked with SAP partners to, to help Atlas kind of get that data, to procure it, to manage it, et cetera. 
Um, and now Atlas is working also with members of the SAP application ecosystem, so primarily SuccessFactors, for instance, which is one of the world's largest HR businesses, to help now use that same treasure trove of data that they built using kind of publicly available data sets from the census or data sets from third-party vendors and merge it with, the again, that enterprise data that I mentioned initially. So now we're allowing enterprises to come forward with their information around where their people reside, what offices they work in, how they're traveling, et cetera, bind that together with this movement data, with traffic patterns, et cetera, to make predictions about which employees may be more likely to leave next year than this year, because the traffic, for instance, in San Francisco is getting so bad that their commutes are extending substantively. And it may, may seem like a small thing, but when you can make that type of prediction for an employee that costs you $100,000, $200,000 a year, and you can keep them from leaving your company, the savings are actually enormous. That doesn't seem like a small thing to me. So what's the history of Atlas? Um, how, did, it, you know, did it come from SAP employees, or was it a, a third-party company that you, you found and said, you know what, with the data that we have access to, we can really hypercharge this thing? Yeah, so it, it's, uh, it's funny. We, the, the people that started Atlas were EIRs at SAP. So they were two employees who had previously founded companies, um, and they had joined SAP over the years in sort of non-traditional roles. Um, one of the things that we do when we look at new markets, primarily, like you said, when we look at a data asset that we believe could supercharge entry into a given space, um, we look for these types of EIRs who could take advantage of that and build a plan and come up with a strategy. And so we sort of saw the data asset and then we saw a couple of entrepreneurs who we believed could go from zero to one. Uh, and we wrote them a check and said, get going. And you're also making uh, the uh, making it available or creating an, uh, a possibility for rank and file SAP employees to take ideas and uh, and and build on them. How does that work? Yeah, no, it's it's uh, a great point. We so more than half of the things that we invest in internally come from the larger SAP community. Um, there are almost ninety thousand employees at SAP. A vast majority of them are um, wildly competent, experienced technologists. Um, so whether or not they're doing, call it actual development work or development management or product management or product marketing and, and sales engineering, P these people understand the problems of enterprise IT and they know how to write great code at, in order to solve those problems. Um, what we realized is that like most organizations, when you have a top-down portfolio model, when you're driving things from the chief strategy officer's office, when you're doing things with a kind of M&A focus or a strategic partnership focused out of the CEO's organization, it becomes very difficult for folks on the ground who are as close to the problem as possible to really come up to, de develop, to develop a solution to a problem they see every day. Um, it's just hard to get access to capital, to get access to resources, et cetera. Um, so we actually run a program that now has almost 15,000 of those 90,000 employees engaged every year, submitting ideas, submitting business plans, 
searching for access to the capital we can provide in order to build a large business. Um, we have a very strict criteria for what that requires because, like I said, we're also making investments and we're partnering with startups outside of SAP. And I believe that it's a lot easier to build a business outside of a large organization than inside of one. What I believe is if you are going to make the attempt to build something inside of a large organization, you need to understand where that large organization can give you superpowers. What's the rocket fuel they can pour on your fire to make it go that much faster and burn that much brighter? Um, and so with the employees inside of SAP that we sort of task at coming up with these ideas, we regularly say we require three things. One is we need every idea that comes to us through this program to be SAP scale, meaning we, we are a business that generates more than $25 billion annually in revenue. You need to be able to move the needle by contributing at least $200 million or more in seven to 10 years if you're successful, right? It gives them a, a, any anybody who has a dream an idea of how big is big to SAP. That's an IPOable business, uh, and this reflects, as I'm sure you know, many seed and Series A investors' perspectives as well. What what we can't do is make investments like a traditional friends and family or angel. We have to have our eye on that big exit. Um, second thing we do is we only we're not an R and D shop like most corporate innovation groups. Um, they'll sort of split investments across business model innovation, across short-term POCs, across types of activities that test new R&D. We don't think that that's our job or our responsibility. There are great organizations at SAP. There are great organizations around the academic community that do technology research. We are investing to build businesses and build them quickly. Um, and so we always make that message transparent. And then the third thing that we, we say regularly is that we will not invest in anything where SAP does not maintain a right to win. If we pull this off, if we enter a market and I pour that, again, that rocket fuel on the fire, it, it should absolutely be clear that SAP has the right to win, the right to walk away on top of the pack. So let, let's say, Max, you find an employee at SAP, one of those 15,000 people that you're, that you're engaging with every year. <clears throat> you think they have a great idea. You think they are or they can build a team uh, that can get it from zero to one. What happens next? So the next thing that we do is we basically write a check and we leave them alone. Um, we give them between 650000 and $2.5 million. Uh, the idea is that should, based on where they're located in the globe, that should last somewhere between 18 and 30 months. Um, I don't believe you can get anything done in six months to a year. Um, we expect, by the way, that at the point in time where we write the check, it's more than just a great idea. That They've talked to customers, that they have letters of intent, that they've built POCs, et cetera. So they can really demonstrate to us, here's an application that we intend to build. Here's what we've shown our customers. Here's how we would implement it. Here's the type of skill set that we need, et cetera. You know, and here's the demo. It's at, at least at least an MVP quality product, if not more. And then we we basically say, here's your cash. Go hire your team, go get out in front of customers, create a brand, build the business the way you would you would ideally want to build it. 
um, and we'll go from there. What? Uh, so you, you're giving them money. Um, you're mm-hmm. giving that you they have access to you know SA, other SAP employees, and uh, you know they don't have to worry about their their health insurance. Uh, and and there's access to the, this this rich data trove that you talked about. Uh, what about expertise? What about um, yeah. you know uh, people who have been there and done that? Uh, how does that work? Yeah, so we we do have so I should highlight we have uh, one core function that we call our studio team. Um, it's a set of designers and engineers that can help you get a business spun up rather quickly. Um, they're immensely high quality folks, right? So the head of engineering at IO is the former principal architect on the GE Predicts platform. Um, so building what became the sort of underpinning for GE's industrial software business. Um, and the head of design was the former head of design at Flipboard. So consumer grade design, beautiful experiences, great understanding of UX research and visual design. Um, and between the two of them, they help all of our underlying ventures, not just directly by, by chipping in when things are very early, but also by helping them screen, hire, um, and really market to great talent that's qualified to do the job. Um, we also have a series of mentors and experts around the SAP community, our partner ecosystem, and frankly, externally, that will get involved with these, these founders fairly early on. Um, enterprise is a weird space, right? It's funny, when you look at enterprise IPOs, the typical founding age is 35. When you hear the wild stories of successes, here's an IPO, the company was started by Evan Spiegel or Mark Zuckerberg or Larry and Sergey out of grad school or out of ho- college, right? Or Bill Gates dropping out of Harvard, right? Whatever it is, it's a young person starting a business. But the reality is that most of these successful enterprise businesses are started by people who understand the enterprise market. And they know that business to business buying cycles are different, right? That an enterprise sale is fundamentally I mean, it's unique. It's from every customer environment to every other environment, the sale can vary entirely. Um, And so what you have is people succeed in that space when they've gone through it, when they know what the problem is. And what we try to do is bring those people to these early stage ventures such that they can have success, even if maybe they have less experience from an enterprise side. You called that model or that approach a studio. Uh, what, what exactly does that mean? Yeah, so, so there's a concept in venture called the venture studio, and there are some great examples of this um, in the market right now. Uh, one well-known example is Betaworks. There's another great example called High Alpha, which is building actually enterprise software businesses out of Indianapolis. Um, Max Levchin has a venture studio. Uh, Ev Williams has a venture studio in Odeo. Effectively, it's an organization that builds and launches startups. Um, the idea is that there are people, like, for instance, our head of engineering and our head of design, who are really good at launching new things. They're good at finding market opportunities. They're good at manufacturing those first products. And those are the type of people who you want to pair with great founders who have the ability to scale things quickly. 
and have the ability to lead teams, et cetera. Because if you can put those people who are great at launching things and identifying spaces to launch things, effectively in an organization with somebody who can take it, take a business out of a venture studio and scale it, then you'll have a much higher success rate. And when we modeled IO, we modeled that, that at least the side of IO that's focused on taking ideas out of SAP and really commercializing them on a venture studio model. So I think a lot, uh, some people have heard of a venture studio model. I think I was only introduced to the concept maybe two years ago. Uh, and there's some incredible people who are doing it, as you mentioned, the founder of Uber is doing one called Expa and so forth. But uh, why hasn't it taken off in a more serious way? It seems to make a lot of sense. Um, I think that it's, you know, we had this trend uh, for better or worse in the venture world uh, 10 years ago that said the right way to generate economics early on was to take hundreds of bets and very limited, you know, hundreds of bets for mentorship and, and very, very limited capital invested <clears throat> with very low ownership levels, right? So you had Y Combinator taking 6% of every deal. You had 500 startups and tech stars and any other, I'll, I'll call it wannabe accelerator around the around the globe. There were hundreds or thousands of them that one could list off. Um, and I think largely what happened is there was a lot of hype around that because of how successful Y Combinator was. And it took five years for the market to realize that that was that was a stupid model. And I'm just come out and say it. That's a stupid model. Really? Well, so, uh, do, you, do you think I, th I think it's a great <laughs> model for Y Combinator? I'm not sure anyone else can do a, it can, is, can do it a is great a job. Great model. It is a great model for Y Combinator because Y Combinator has access to the best deals. Right. But if you look at the nature of the model, right, the only deals that drive venture forward, especially when you take such low ownership stakes in, the, in a deal, are the deals that are massive home runs. For Y Combinator, it's the Dropbox IPO. Yeah, right. and Airbnb, Airbnb and Stripe, and 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 there'll exactly. be others down down the, down the list. But right there, uh, but drop. But yeah, but Y Combinator has hundreds of companies in the portfolio, and you uh, over name, a thousand, I think. Okay, over a thousand, and you could name twenty that drive the vast majority of its returns. Absolutely. And the the delta is Y Combinator is getting the first and best look at everything. Yep. And so if you're a random. If you're a random accelerator in Birmingham, Alabama, of which I'm sure there are three, <laughs> right, you have no access on a relative basis to the deals that would would have the potential to drive Y Combinator if they said no, right? So you say no to Y Combinator or Y Combinator says no to you and you immediately go to something like Techstars, the next best. And then Techstars get a chance to say no to you. And then... All of a sudden, 500 startups may get a chance to say no to you. And then you may not travel outside of your local market. So you decide whether or not you really want to be in an accelerator or not. And ultimately, it trickles down. And the only things that end up in these accelerator portfolios outside of, I'd argue, outside of the big two right now are crap. Yeah. Um, and so we fundamentally don't, it took a long time for VCs, right? certainly at the early stage. And I would argue again, the people who entered VC in those models were people who wanted to be in VC, but didn't understand the market. You didn't see people leaving. Nobody left Kleiner Perkins 
to go start a new accelerator out. Some, some people will leave VCs to go to Y Combinator, right? But nobody left Kleiner or Sequoia to go start an accelerator in a tier, like a tier two market. Yep. Um, you had a bunch of people who quit jobs at mediocre tech companies who decided this was their way to get into a VC role. And largely over five or 10 year period, all of the fervor that happened there went away. And I would argue that now you're starting to see the smarter folks, right? Like the former founder of Uber, uh, like the founder of one of the founders of PayPal, really recognize that if they have this differentiated capability, that it's a much better, higher probability return generator to start something, take a substantive piece of ownership, provide a lot of capital on a relative basis to get it off the ground. Because there, if you end up, instead of with 6% of a business, uh, with 60% of a business, because you were the organization that created it and spun it out, you can actually have a lower, after you raise a bunch of capital and get diluted down, you can have a much higher return. The team also, by the way, gets a lot of equity. They don't take a lot of risk. Um, but because you're being more targeted, being more focused, being very strategic around how you deploy capital, just like you would as a VC, just like you do with NextGen, right? You have a thesis. You're very or, you're kind of oriented around a couple of different changes in the market that you believe are going to come to fruition. If you take that approach, then you can actually have access to outsized return. Yeah, I mean, one of the big advantages of the studio model is at, at, at the studio level, you have a much bigger ownership percentage than a traditional venture firm. And obviously, venture firms have a much bigger ownership percentage than a traditional accelerator, and, and that is going to drive returns overall. So I think there are a lot of advantages to the to the studio model, to what you're doing at SAP, to what Ev Williams, the co-founder of Twitter, and Max Lodkin, co-founder of PayPal, are doing and so forth. What do you think uh, the future of, of the studio is going to be five years from now? Uh, you know, Where will that phenomenon stand? I think there will be, so the, the thing about studios is they don't scale well. Um, you can only start so many things on an annual basis and you can only deploy so much capital. Um, the reality is, and by the way, only a handful of people have the credibility to raise enough capital to operate a studio really effectively. And that's why you have the founder or founder of Twitter the founder, of, who's also the founder of Medium, founder of PayPal, founder of Exact Target, um, who are doing these types of things because they have the credibility to say, do this, trust us with your cash, even though we don't necessarily have investable assets right now. Um, so I don't think that it scales. I don't think it takes over the seed market. I think you end up with a handful of venture studios that deliver outsized return in the market. I think maybe you end up with followers, so you find more capital than is chasing venture studios, so more LPs looking to put capital into venture studios. Um, and as that happens, the returns for the incremental venture studios will go down for sure. Um, but I think it becomes a sustainable part of the early stage venture market. You've been doing this for a couple of years now. I'm curious if you think it's at the point where you can say, you know what, this is successful. Um, and and what would you would you have 
advice for your counterparts, um, you know, for you know IBM or Oracle, right? Similar kinds of companies, or even or even just other large, you know, kind of Fortune 500 companies that might not be in enterprise software. Is this something they should yeah. be looking at? So, so I, I can say with near certainty that there would be no way to know whether or not we are successful at this point in time, and that's part of the, that's the important part of it, right? We're Less, we're two years into a deployment cycle, and we're set, we're talking about a ten-year harvest period for the portfolio. There's a whole lot of execution left, right? We've got three more years of cap capital deployment to fund these businesses as they get going, and then we've got five years after that to just keep building them. Um, so, give me give me another three years and i'll be able to tell you whether whether we're going to be successful whether we're going to return the amount of cash or create the irr that we are expecting of ourselves right we believe that sap has this unique asset we believe that if you combine that asset with the right type of individuals and the right model to take advantage of it we can create impact for sap we can create return for sap we can create value for the startups and the entrepreneurs that we fund Right, um, but like any venture fund, we believe that that plays out over an extended period of time. Um, now, I would say for my for peers at other large kind of global two hundred companies, that's part of the lesson. Most people attempt these things; they treat you know innovation as a function because is innovation theater. It's not investment into the intersection of where invention meets commercialization. They're not investing over patient periods of time. Um, they're not really seeking to drive change. They're trying to uh, create the illusion of change such that they can sell things close to the core. Um, and I, I truly believe that. For any company that sort of dabbles or plays in this space, that cares more about the marketing than the impact, they will be unsuccessful. Um, and luckily, we I, I am extremely blessed to have the support of both a, a fairly visionary CEO and a incredibly savvy CFO from a venture perspective that both have given us the purview to, to kind of operate on these timelines and take big risks. Uh, without that and without that expectation, I never would have left the, the former, formal world of venture capital to kind of come back to, to building, certainly in this context. Max Wessel, thanks for spending time with me. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for listening to Taking Notes with NextGen Venture Partners. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. To learn more about us or to hear all of our past podcasts, please go to nextgenvp.com.